Hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine, and this is your Rattlecast for Tuesday, January 28th. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, as always, we have a great guest for you today. We have an open line segment afterwards, so I hope you uh, do the, participate in the prompt and uh, join in for that. Um, Kathleen Balma is our poet today, uh, but first, we always like to do a warm-up poem while everybody trickles in, and we make sure the feed's working, and I have my phone on mute, which was a, a bit of a delay there. Uh, there we go. Um, so, uh, first of all, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3, working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in per- continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. There's a reason we have to say that, but it's a secret. And, um, now today for the warm-up poem, as everybody trickles in and finds a comfy place to sit. Uh, the warm-up poem today, if you don't know who Patricia Smith is, of course you really should. She's won pretty much every award there is, or, or been a finalist. Uh, she's been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. She's a five-time slam poetry champion. And she also, uh, was the winner of the Rattle Poetry Prize several years ago. This is a poem of hers from issue number 27 to warm us up. This is uh, Building Nicole's Mama. And this issue, uh, number 27, featured this poem with a CD in the back of the issue, which is always fun. And uh, those are still available if anybody's interested in picking up a copy. There's about, you know, it's it's an hour-long tribute to Slam Poetry CD, which was really cool to do. And uh, we interviewed Patricia for this issue, too. And this is her poem here, uh, Building Nicole's Mama. This is a poem for the uh, sixth grade class at Lily C. Evans Elementary School in Dade County, Miami, which they made me promise to say every time I did the poem. (laughs) I am astonished at their mouthful names. Lacanicia, Chevalane, Deleo, Fumaleo. Their ragged rebellions and lip gloss pouts and all those pants drooped as drapery. I rejoice when they kiss my face, whisper wet and urgent in my ear, make me their obsession because I have brought them poetry. They shout me raw, bruise my wrist with their pulling, and brashly claim me as mama as they cradle my head in their little laps waiting for new words to grow in my mouth. You. You. Angry, jubilant, weeping poets, we are all saviors, reluctant hosannas in the limelight. But you knew that, didn't you? So let us bless this sixth grade class. Forty cracking voices, forty nappy heads, and all of them raise their hands when I ask. They have all seen the reaper, grim in his heavy robe, pushing the button for the dead project elevator, begging for a break at the corner pawn shop, cackling wildly in the back pew of the Baptist church. I ask the death question, and 40 fists punch the air. Me! Me! An O'Neill matchstick crack child watched his mother's body become a claw. And nine-year-old Tico Jefferson, barely big enough to lift the gun, fired a bullet into his throat when Mama bended his back with a lead pipe. Tamika cried into a sofa pillow when Daddy blasted Mama into the north wall of their cluttered one-room apartment. Danya's cousin, gone in a drive-by, Dark window, click, click, gone, says Danya, her tiny finger a barrel, the thumb a hammer. I am astonished at their losses. And yet, when I read a poem about my own hard-eyed teenager, Jeffrey asks, is he dead yet? Cannot be comprehended. An 18-year-old still pushing and pulling his own breath. And forty faces pity me, knowing that I will soon be as they are, numb to our bloodied histories, favoring the reaper with a thumbs up and a wink, hearing the question and shouting, Me! Me, Miss Smith! I know somebody dead! Can poetry hurt us, they ask me, before crawling into my words to sleep? I love you, Nicole says. Nicole wearing my face, pimples peppering her nose, and she is as black as angels are. Nicole's braids kissed with match flame to seal them. And, and can, can, you, can you teach me to write a poem about my mama, Miss Smith? I mean, you write about your daddy, and he's dead. Can you teach me to remember my mama? A teacher tells me this is the first time Nicole has admitted that her mother is gone. 
Murdered by slim silver needles and a stranger rifling through her blood, the virus pushing her skeleton through for Nicole to see. And now this child with rusty knees and mismatched shoes sees poetry as her scream and asks me for the words to build her mother again, replacing the voice, stitching on the lost flesh. So poets, as we take the stage, as we flirt and sin and rejoice behind microphones, remember Nicole. She knows that we are here now and she is an empty vessel waiting to be filled. And she is waiting. And she is waiting. And she waits. So that was Patricia Smith reading her poem, Building Nicole's Mama, from uh, Rattle Number 27. Uh, you can hear why uh, she's a four-time slam poetry champion in that poem. And also, if you are reading along, it's really interesting to... Uh, Note how some of the changes are made throughout the poem. Little lines change, little words and phrases change. And that was one of the fascinating things about doing that slam poetry issue back in 2007 when it came out. That was a long time ago. Uh, at least it feels like that, 13 years. But um, every single one of the poems that we published, the audio did not match the text. and Because uh, it evolves over time and, and people perform their poems um, sort of a, in a constant workshop where they're uh, always tweaking and tinkering. So that's always interesting to see. Uh, all right, so let's move on to today's poet. Um, and, and as always, thanks so much for joining us. Um, before, I, uh, before I say anything else, um, please do know that uh, you can uh, leave comments for today's poet, Kathleen Balma, in the comments section of YouTube, if you'd like. And uh, in the chat window, I should say, and I'll pass those along. And please do, no matter where you're listening to this, whether it's iTunes or Facebook or YouTube or Stitcher or whatever the heck else. There's so many, I don't even, I can't even remember them. Like, literally, I have to look at a list and I don't have it in front of me. But no matter where you're watching this, please do click the like button. Um, tell your friends about the show if you enjoy it. And uh, that is how poetry spreads around social media. And uh, we all get to enjoy it a lot more when you do that. So please do click the like button and subscribe and turn on your notification bell so you remember that our shows are going on and all that kind of cool stuff. Uh, and thanks so much for doing that. So today's poem, or poet, is... Um, yeah, one second here. Uh, today's poet is Kathleen Balma. She's the author of uh, Gela Moffrey and Farrago. Uh, which is this beautiful chapbook. I love the cover art uh, from Finishing Line Press. And um, let me just read her bio right in the back of this issue here, or this uh, chapbook. Uh, Kathleen Balma is a Fulbright Fellow, teacher, librarian, and translator from every U.S. state you never wanted to visit. Her writing awards include a Pushcart Prize and a Writer-in-Residence Fellowship from Rivendell Writers Colony. Uh, she lives in New Orleans, and uh, here she is. Kathleen Balma. Hello, Kathleen. How are you doing tonight? Hi, I'm doing good. How are you? Good. And, and you're, uh, you're in New Orleans, right? Yeah, I am. Uh, that is one place that um, I, I would love to visit and never have. Um, have you lived there like your whole life? I think it said... No, no. no. Um, I grew up in Southern Illinois uh -huh. and I've lived a lot of places, um, but I moved here by choice. Um, I want to say 2015 I moved here. Mm -hmm. That seems right. Um, just because I wanted to, which is usually why I move places. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, um, and I fell in love with it and didn't want to leave, is, which is what happens to a lot of people who come here visiting. Yeah, um, it feels like one of those places that, I mean, just from a distance, having never actually been there, it feels like one of those places that actually has a culture which like nowhere else does, but maybe that's just my imagination. It has a really unique culture. And not only that, it's a big city that feels like a small town in terms of just how lovely and friendly and warm people are. It's really nice having grown up in a small town to live somewhere in an urban area where people will smile and say hi to you and wave and make small talk. And I lived in the East coast for a while and I really missed small talk. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so yeah, it's a it's a really beautiful place, and the weather is perfect for me. I, I can't get too hot. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I was I was going along with you until I, I mean I love the small town thing, but uh, but I need some seasons. I need some uh, you know some dry air 
And uh, we have seasons, <laughs> we have seasons, but you do have to be able to take the heat. Yeah, yeah, that that is not me. I grew up uh, in Western New York, <laughs> and then I lived in LA for a little bit and moved up to the mountains because I couldn't stand the perpetual summer. <laughs> okay. Um, so, do you want to read a poem to start out with uh, from the sure. book, or whatever you want to um, read? I don't want to. The first poem I'm going to read is called What the Traveler Knows. And if you're following along in the chat book, that's on page 15. Okay, cool. Thanks. Um, What the Traveler Knows. Every country is a cure for something. Every cobblestone a lozenge for some scratchy sore spot in your pedestrian head. Every skyline a pointy heavenscape of exclamation marks cheering you on. If you are irksome and rude in your own land, there is another where you are witty and direct. Your voice, once a pastel wine, now an atonal woodwind of desire. If you are hideous in your hometown, there is a locale where you can melt the locals with your sunless eyes and hold your wire-haired head high while an effervescent flow of admirers bubbles from the sacred streets winking and circling you on bikes. You have only to find your stopping place. Find it and let it remake you from the terra up. What, why make amends when you can make haste? Look there, that palace, this tower, yonder mountain peak. It's the view you were born to see, the perfect finish to the shelf song of your life so far, the end. Keep looking. The end. Maybe tomorrow. The end. Almost there. The end. Yeah, that was uh, What the Traveler Knows from Kathleen Balma's newest book, um, Gala Moffrey and Farago, which are two words I had to look up. I'd never heard of them. I don't know if it's just <laughs> me uh, or, or those words that other people know, but but they mean, I think, like sort of a pile, like bric-a-brac, like a pile of things sort of right they mean bric-a-brac but they sound like um an italian brand name which is why i like <laughs> yeah i was gonna ask about that like it's sort of a a, a beautiful way to put bric-a-brac or you know <laughs> so i have a thing where after i pick a title i i'll stick with it if i really love it but then i mean i only have the one chat book so it's not like this happens to me all the time but i chose this title and then i i googled it on, and I and I look for it on Amazon and good and I found out that tons of people have used this really? title. Really? Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, so many people have named their poetry books Gallimaufry and Farrell. I mean, they're uh-huh. not very well yeah. known people, but um, it's not very original yeah. title. Well, well titles can't can't be trademarked, <laughs> and um, and you are yeah. now the most famous Kathleen Valma. <laughs> to write this book so uh yeah, so yeah. you're all set i don't have to worry about that but do you want to talk about like like it is a really good title for the book it fits with the content uh, really well do you want to talk about like the process of putting the poems together for this book like did you um how'd that work uh, well i i'll start if if i may by i'll tell you about what i would consider my first breakthrough moment when i went from writing kind of, you know, workshop poems that had potential but were kind of crappy, (laughs) you know, like to writing things that I felt really represented me and my voice and what I, and my brain and everything. I I started out reading a lot of poets and, and a lot of poets I really, really admired seemed to be writing, though I know it's not, um, I know you're not supposed to think that everything's autobiograph- autobiographical, but there are poets who seem to be writing autobiographically and we all kind of know, even if we don't say, mm-hmm. and it's like, you know, and I was writing a lot, I was reading a lot of those people and I was trying to write poems in that, in that vein. Only I wasn't very good at those poems and they all sounded kind of self-pitying and uh, melodramatic. And I, and I realized that I was, in danger of becoming what I call the poor me poet. And, um, and at some point it occurred to me that I didn't have to write about myself and my life, that that wasn't a requirement Mm -hmm. and I could do other things. And I, I've always kind of had the imagination of a four-year-old. I've never lost that. So I just started 
I just gave myself permission to stop writing about myself. And that's when I started having a lot more fun with my writing and also writing better stuff than I had before. And that's mostly what this chat book is filled mm -hmm. with. Um, are all of the, the, a lot of poems in this chat book come from my what if questions. Well, what do you mean um, by that? What if questions? Well, you know how there's that period of childhood where kids are bothering you and they're saying, what if this, what if that? That's what I mean. Like, um, why, why is the sky blue? Why is the grass green? Why, you know, why, why is there gravity? Like, just, um, or what if, you know, what do ghosts really want? If there were ghosts, what would, why would, would there be mo their motive for ghosts? Um, it's one of my things. Uh, what if there were invisible guns? Uh, one of my poems that I'm going to read tonight is called Revelation at the Invisible Gun Show. And I, I was thinking if, if they invented invisible guns, then what would that, how would you sell those? <laughs> you know, like what would the marketing strategy be for the invisible gun? Like I have all these weird questions that flip flit through my mind daily and if I stop myself and start writing um start trying to answer my own questions as they enter my head my own weird wacky questions about weird wacky topics they often just turn into poems yeah the, the thing that I was going to say um is that the, the book feels like it's, you had fun with it which is um kind of it's it's strange that that's a rarity within poetry books these days but it just it seemed like <laughs> like you get to visit with Kathleen Balma having fun in her head for a little bit which is why we yeah. read a the warm-up poem I did, uh, Building Nicole's Mama, which is an intense, dramatic poem because I try to mix it up. But these are these mm -hmm. are fun poems that, that I really enjoyed reading. Um, do, do you want to read a couple more? Yeah, I'll read the okay. one I just talked yeah, about. This is, this is Revelation at the Invisible Gun Show. Um, I'll give you a page number for that if you're following along. It's on page six of the chat book. <clears throat> I always wish I had props for this one because there's like, because this one, you know, it's a, it's a man showing off the invisible gun and you have to have props for that, but I don't have them. Um, Revelation at the Invisible Gun Show. A dapper man stands behind empty display, baby powder in hand. He sprinkles the talcum. A weapon appears to appear. It's not like any we've ever, never seen. First sight, the almost outline of barrel and grip beneath drops of white. The salesman touches the solid nada, spreads the dust just so, and all the gun parts start to show. Now muzzle, now clip, a nude, small caliber soul. How to know if rounds are in those spirit chambers? haunting all the bullets for this unobserved peace to eyes untrained in unseen things are loud in sound if not in hue and piercing yeah that that uh that was one of my favorite poems in the book actually because um my my dad actually owned a gun store when i was a kid so, so my first job was polishing display cases on those gun shows and trying to oh, make them so shine. And um, I've never been to a gun show. My Gramps was mm -hmm. a big gun enthusiast. You know, the kind of guy who grew up uh, watching and reading westerns. And for him, it was all about the fantasy of being a cowboy. He just he didn't really shoot guns. He mm -hmm. just collected them, and they were they were like toys. That like, you know, the way I. I collect, you know, what, the way you collect anything, stamps or, and, um, but I never grew up around them. I just knew that they were an important part of my, my Gramps' life, you know, um, and I never went to a gun show. I always wondered what they were like. So when I, when I wanted to write this poem, I called him and said, what is a gun show like? What <laughs> happens there? You know, and he kind of described it to me, um, he said, well, there's some display tables and there are people selling things, you know, and they'll, and they try to, you know, that they, they use all the same marketing techniques as anybody else. Mm -hmm. They have these booths and these tables and, you know, and you can come up and ask them questions. And, and so it, it started to sound like some, it started to sound kind of boring and I don't know, um, or something. Yeah. almost like a, 
almost like going uh-huh. to AWP. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's how exactly how it was. Even as a kid, I remember, if, you know, going there and helping set up. It was actually usually it was holsters they sold. They owned some company that sold holsters, but um, but it felt exactly the same as going to a baseball card trade show, which I also liked to do when I was like, you know, thirteen or fourteen or whatever that age was. Yeah. Um, well, do you want to read another another poem? I, I kind of cut you off before sure. before your second. No, not at all. Okay, so the next poem, um, it it's called Abraham Honestly, and I have to tell you that growing up in Illinois, uh, as you can imagine, Abraham Lincoln was like the first and main theme of every U.S. history unit that we ever had. You know, growing up in the land of Lincoln, and on top of that, my mom was a history teacher, so. One summer, um, she paid me to proofread her. She was teaching junior college, and she paid me to proofread her students' research papers. She was commenting on the content of the paper with one color of ink, and I was just doing basic sentence structure corrections with another color of ink. And um, she hated doing that kind of thing, so she she pawned it off on me. Um, and I read some of the most ludicrous sentences about Abraham Lincoln that summer <laughs> that I've ever read. And one of them was so crazy that it inspired this poem. So at the beginning of this poem, um, it's a quote from an American college student's history paper. And this is the quote. <clears throat> With his own two hands, Abe Lincoln built the log cabin he was born in. Theory one. Out of body Abe. The ghostly glob of fetal Abraham sneaks out of his mother's womb at night with architecture on his budding mind. In the first few months, the Lincoln bean can barely hold a toothpick, let alone a log, so he darts around his neighbor's place, plotting floor plans and examining crannies. By month two, his heart's really in it. By mid-trimester, he's using the tail to smooth out the mud mortar of his neighbor's house. Mud, he thinks, and feels his very first shiver. By month five, he's chopping thick stripes of wood by the light of his prenatal halo. By month six, he's strapping logs to his unborn back and floating them across miles of Kentucky airspace. By month seven, he's all over the roof like a Christmas specter. By month eight, his newly lit neurons are sparkling up the lawn as he flaps back and forth from womb to hearth, nesting like there's no state like home, no place like tomorrow. Theory two, born again, Abe. When you make a house of your heart, no assembly is required, but some laying on of hands may be. Theory three, authorial Abe. Like many Abrahams before him, Lincoln enjoys limited omniscience whenever he writes speeches, treaties, bills, or commandments, and this has begun to affect his mind in arboreal ways. He often imagines what it must have been like for his pa to construct their homestead. How many times had the teenage Lincoln built that same boxy lodge in his mind? amputating trees and sanding them to naked plainness, putting, perhaps, more care into it than his own father had. This daydream kicks in like a nervous tick when he loses things, and for every log he stacks on his imaginary abode, a windy sigh rushes through the grassy blades of his beard. Since the war began, he's been adding rooms that were never there in his youth, and the walls are getting higher. So high the house is now a tower. He must climb and climb. That was Abraham, honestly, from uh, Gallimaufry and Farrago. Um, one of the things we mentioned, um, I think when we were talking earlier, is that you've had many lives already. Um, you've had many careers and done many things. You're a yeah. librarian right now in a public library. Um, yeah, and will be for the rest of my is that life. Your, is that sure. your final thing? As I, as I mentioned <laughs> to you when you were talking about that, we're going to do a tribute to librarians. So stick with that at least for one year, and then we'll get you in that issue. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, you know, I, I do feel it is my calling. I feel it's my, my right place, my right, what, what, I, what I'm supposed to be there's doing. A, it's kind of weird to have yeah, that. Yeah, um, yeah. So hang on a second. 
Okay. Um, there's a, yeah, I think I'm coming down with a cold, actually. Um, but anyway, there's a, um, a meme going around that I keep seeing over the last couple of days that, like, more people visited the library this year than the movies, which is a good thing to hear, yeah, but it's but one I of those just... things that I don't really believe. You know, it's one of those... No, you should you, believe but... it. But that doesn't mean that people are reading. Let That's exactly what, what I was going to ask. Like yeah, yeah. What are people doing at the <laughs> library? Is is what I want to know. Okay. Um, they're if they're under eighteen, they're most likely visiting the library to play video games because they don't have video game systems or they don't ha- or um, oh, at wow. home. And most, and I would say, like every day, no matter what library branch it is, there are there's like a small cadre of teens coming to play roblox um now i used to kind of be an old buddy-duddy about video games because i like the last video game i played was space invaders on the first (laughs) atari system so um i don't really get the whole gaming craze and i i had deep suspicions that video games were bad for people but i did my research and so far all of the research keeps repeatedly showing that they're not bad for people and in fact that they have a mm-hmm. lot of cognitive benefits so and social benefits too so i'm finally on the video game bandwagon and i'm mm-hmm. fine with it you know but um also a lot of people come to make photocopies to use the computer to apply mm-hmm. for jobs online um to fill out to make resumes to um get one-on-one tech assistance if they don't if they're not computer literate we offer that for free and to send faxes we send a lot of faxes and most of those most of those are for people who are applying for welfare so it's um it's kind of shitty that they have to spend money to send a fax to get their welfare benefits and eventually I hope that service will be free because that's literally the only reason people are sending faxes oh, wow. and we send yeah. a lot. I had no idea. But it does seem so, to me that the library and Starbucks are the two only social <laughs> gatherings that we have left in, in our society. Like everybody's so isolated on their oh. phone, you know, or at home and you don't really know your neighbors anymore. But the library is the one place you actually like see and interact with people. Um, yeah, the library is an incredibly social space, and and so I will say this as a plug for public libraries that definitely go because there's a lot of programs, no matter who you are, that that cater to you and your interests most likely, and also it's a great place to meet people. Um, and we don't require that you be quiet; you can talk in the library now. That's been true for about thirty years, but just throwing that out there because a oh, lot yeah. of people still don't know. <laughs> um, and, but we yeah. kind of sidestepped it though. So, what were your past um, careers? Before before being a librarian, uh, well, some of them were more controversial uh-huh. than others. Um, so let's see. My first job was that I I was in the Navy, and that's a whole story that would take a whole oh, hour to tell, mm-hmm. but I was, and uh, I was a gunner's mate, which. Um, not very many women could boast of when I joined. Um, it was it was kind of new to, for women to even be allowed to do that, and because it was considered a combat rating, even though when, if you're on a ship, you're never going to be doing hand to hand combat. So it was kind of silly that there were any um, jobs that would be closed off to women on a ship. But um, which eventually they figured that out, and they were like, "Yeah, we can let women do this because because <laughs> um, it's mostly really nerdy." stuff with that you do in the navy it's electronics and electricity and hydraulics and um, you know it's a lot of just repair work and maintenance work of machinery and and everybody has to have basic firefighting skills and um and then that's kind of it Mm -hmm. you're just kind of a nerd supporting everybody else who are doing real combat sorry just sorry sorry (laughs) shipmates I, i i don't mean to undermine what we do but yeah it's kind of true so um then um i Moved to Australia for love, and that's a whole another story that could fill a whole another hour. And um, moved back from Australia and went to college, and put myself through college by working in strip bars and paid for my college that way. And um, 
my mom knows this, so I feel okay saying it to everybody else. Like it was the hardest thing is when your mom learns that about you. Now that she knows, I'm not really embarrassed for anybody else to know. <laughs> um, so we've been through that whole thing. And then, um, then when I went to grad school, I was a teaching assistant, you know, that a lot of people watching this will probably be able to relate to. And then I was, um, a Spanish teacher for a long time in public schools and, I'm not good at that. I'm good at Spanish, but I'm not good at teaching it because I don't have patience for people who don't just learn it easily <laughs> like I did. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that wasn't a good idea for me to do. Um, and and I would, then I, uh, because I had a library science degree, I was a school librarian. And um, then when I transitioned to working in public library, it was like coming home. It was exactly what I knew I should have been doing all along. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. Um, so, before we went on, on air, we were talking a little bit about um, just the idea that, that writers shouldn't be just writers and, and, and should have some kind of background and some kind of um, story, which is really good, you know, good to hear you yeah. know, your perspective on that, because that's what Rattle's really all about and what it was founded for. Uh, for anybody who doesn't know at home, um, Ellen Fox, who founded Rattle 25 years ago, is a um, lawyer, and then he ended up in real estate sort of by accident, Then he ended up being a businessman and, um, and a, you know, a counselor degree and all sorts of different kind of things and sort of trickled into poetry, which was something that he loved when he was younger. And uh, for, for Rattle, it's something that we really believe strongly, that poetry enriches your life, and so it should be something that everyone should be doing rather than just people who are academics in an English department. Um, do you think, um, just reading poems, do you think, you know, in books and, and things, do you, do you sort of feel a sense of, um, you know, that, that a poet is just an English major and doesn't have any life experience? Is that something you kind of recognize? Well, sometimes I think, um, I don't think that's necessarily true now. Uh, I mean, certainly there's, I, I, I do wonder what the, well, like, what is the percentage of people who are writing poetry who are strictly academics and have been academics their whole adult lives. I mean, I, I don't, uh, and there's mm-hmm. no shame in that at all. And I don't want to belittle it. Um, it's for some people that is a calling and I understand um, wanting to, to spend your life in academia. It, it, it when I was in academia, I was very happy there. I don't think I would be happy there now. I'm not sure really why. I'm just in a different place now than when I was in grad school. It doesn't. No, it no longer feels like home. Eh, don't know. But um. But yeah. But one. I mean, one thing I like about writers is that often we do have kind of a weird life path that doesn't lead directly from point A to point B, and so we have interesting stories to tell. Um, and those of us who haven't made I mean I consider my weird life path mostly a result of bad choices so for for those people who have not made bad choices their whole lives um, and who've been good and who've been studious and diligent and also have followed an academic path they they usually impress and intimidate the hell out of me because they're so knowledgeable and so articulate and um, I ideally like um, to think that all of us inform each other and help each other. Um, but yeah, I kind of, I mean, I guess I do have a bias in favor of those of us who aren't just mm-hmm. living in academia. If I, if I, if I lean one way, obviously that's the way I went. So I lean that way. Um, I think you have a richer, rather, I think that the relationship I have to literature is an ideal one, because like I was telling you before we went on air, I, um, I don't think that I would really love literature the way I do if I did it all day mm-hmm. for a living. If I had to read and write and edit and proofread and critique for a living, if that was my bread and butter, I would need a break from it. And instead, I do something else that I love. And then I come home and literature is my, you know, it's, it's my thing that I look forward mm-hmm. to at the end of the day. And, and, I, and I think that's such a a more healthy relationship to the arts um that it gets to be my vacation instead of my living yeah that that's how i've always felt about it too i you know the reason why i got into this i was a um, science major and um 
you know, the doing writing poetry was like a break from doing lab work and all this sort of tiring so cool. things that you had to do. And so <laughs> yeah. I eventually, you know, would sort of start, I started faking my labs just to keep writing, which, you know, because it was just, you know, it's just, it's just academic stuff. Like who cares? And so I'd, you know, I'd write fake data, which, you know, we, we all. <laughs> That's me. I can't. I can't. Yeah. Well. Computers. Well, that was that was me back as an yeah. undergraduate. But I I didn't get a degree. Um. I I didn't do my thesis, so I don't have a degree. So I'm not a cheater sure. because I I just um, was along for the ride. But um. But I think what what happens a lot, you know, there's a career path which I even thought, you know, when I dropped out of um. Um, the sciences, I was like dual majoring in English. So I thought, well, I just, I'll just major in English. And I thought like the sort, there's sort of a myth that there's a path for, um, you know, you get an MFA and then you get a, you know, it's a terminal degree. So you can teach at college and then you teach and there's like an actual path. But it, the, the truth of it is that there's so much um, competition and so few jobs that really what happens is people end up dropping yeah. out and finding other career paths. Um is it as, is it more or less dismal than the humanities? <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. There's there's one thing where like analyzing, like being able to do literary style analysis and thinking in that way is really helpful for a lot of different careers. And you know, there's there's things you can do with it. But yeah. to become a, you know, we did the adjunct poets issue, and what really happens is you imagine that you're going to become a professor, and then you end up becoming an adjunct, and then there's a way that right. it's a pyramid scheme which is what really bothers me. You know, it's, it's multi-level marketing. And, um, you know, the people at the bottom oh, are paying God. for the, the one, you know, couple people at the top. And that always... I always thought it was shitty from a student's perspective. You know, as somebody who actually paid my way through most of my, you know, undergraduate education, that I was paying the same amount of money to take a class with somebody who had never taught before and didn't have a master's degree as I would pay to take a class with somebody who had a PhD and was renowned in their field you know like and and of course we've all had great TAs and bad professors or vice versa and it comes down to some people can teach and some can't but you know it's it's never fair it's never fair for the person who's paying and it's never fair for the person who's being paid it's not you know there's always something that doesn't work out um and I and I can't figure out why education keeps getting more expensive when the when people are increasingly paid less and exploited more too, that also doesn't mm -hmm. make sense yeah, to me. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of um, market forces at play, unfortunately, which is really, I don't know. It's a, it's a problem. Um, but, the, but I was trying to segue into something I wanted to ask you about, because you have two bios in this book, which is, you know, you want internally and one on the back cover and you're one internally. Yeah. You say Kathleen Balma is the least likely person to have ever <laughs> been a Fulbright fellow. <laughs> So I, I really want to ask about that. Like, what yeah, what are you talking about? Well, it's former <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 the whole time. Okay, so I went to Spain on the Fulbright, and it was my second time in Spain because I'd done study abroad there. And so I was so happy to be back. And the whole time I was there, I kind of had this guilty tee-hee like, voice in the back of my head, like, they, they gave a Fulbright <laughs> to a stripper. Oh, my God. You know, like, and uh, they don't know it. They think I'm somebody really special and important. And the whole time you're there on Fulbright, and I, you know, it's a great compliment to be given the Fulbright, but I felt like I was a fraud the whole time. Like I had tricked them into thinking that I was, mm -hmm. that I deserved this. Um, and, uh, I, and the whole time you're there, you get treated like royalty by all of the uh, mm -hmm. embassy people who, it, as it turns out, are all envious because they all applied for Fulbrights and didn't get it, so they joined the Foreign Service instead. And and that was a repeated story that I heard from people in the Foreign Service was, oh, I always wanted a Fulbright, but I couldn't get one, so um, here I am. <laughs> I like, and they wanted... and. And there was a moment when we they'd invited us to the embassy for like wine and cheese and mingling with important Spanish people. And um, I was so intimidated to talk to all of these people. And um, and at some point, a light bulb went off and I realized, oh, my God, these people are intimidated to talk to me. <laughs> they think I'm they think I'm the important person. And that. And that just struck me as so hilarious. <laughs> that, well, that that's kind of mm -hmm. what inspired the um, bio. So, so I don't really know that much yeah. about the Fulbright system. There was a some kind of like thesis or like you had to like present some kind of project you wanted to do, right? Is that is that true? There are many different types of Fulbrights, and I was there 
Well, um, they're the Fulbright researchers and that grant, um, <clears throat> people think that one's harder to get. Um, in a way it is because you do have to have sponsorship from somebody in the country that you're applying to go to. There has to somebody important in your field has to write a letter and say, we want this person to come here and we will support them while they're here on their, on their project. And it's hard. I feel like people are scared that they'll never be able oh, here comes Milo the kitty. Okay. Hi, Milo. We were told um, Milo would make a cameo, so I'm glad it, it came through. <laughs> yeah, here he is. Um, so I think people see that requirement and they're like, oh, I'm never going to be able to get anybody important in my field to recommend me. But, um, but as it turns out, there are, people are so afraid of that one that there are mm. fewer applications and so it's less competitive. And the one I was there for is the teaching assistantship, which everybody applies to because they think it'll be easier to get. And so as a consequence, it turns out to be much harder to get because you're competing against 10, you know, 10 times more people than you would have been. So that's the one that I got. And it meant that I was placed in, um, I was placed in a bilingual elementary school and I was teaching English part-time. In reality, I was having really sweet conversations with eight-year-olds about mm. what they had for breakfast um, and things like that for about 16 hours a week. And the rest of the time, I was free. And um, it and I, I, I think it was, I mean, it was one of the best years of my life. I, I tried to make the most of it in every way and to earn it because I felt like I hadn't earned it, um, that I, again, I had this, imposter syndrome thing going on. So I worked extra hard for the school and did a lot of extra um, projects for them that I didn't have to do because I wanted to prove to myself that I really deserve to be there. Um, and, it, and it was a wonderful thing. It was a great Yeah, that's experience. really cool to hear. I, I kind of, I want to follow up on the imposter syndrome because I think we all have it. <laughs> but, but, you know, I think it's just the oh, case. Yeah. Like, I feel like an imposter. Like, what the hell am I doing? I'm just like, I don't know anything about poetry. <laughs> And here I am editing a poetry magazine and doing poetry shows. But um, but let's just, just drop it and leave it at that. Because um, we haven't done really uh, two poems in a row without me interrupting you. So why don't you like read two poems so people can enjoy yeah. some of your, your poetry. Okay. <clears throat> well, um, the next one that I'll read... Okay, I'll read two in a row. I'll read um, two from the chat book. What do ghosts need? Which is on page... Let's see. It's on page 25 and 26. And then Singularity, which is on pages 30 and 31. Okay. Can you hear the cat going nuts on the cord? I'm afraid he's going to unplug you're, while you're I'm so reading. Good. I'll, I'll try to make <laughs> okay. sure that doesn't happen. Um, what do ghosts need? A ghost needs an audience, or it is pointless. But does a ghost need a point? No. Never mind, then. Closure, clearly, is a ghostly need. A ghost needs a therapist. Yes, but not a couch, for they rest floating. A ghost needs a locus to which it can be tethered by an airy umbilical, but who or what is at the other end, refusing the quick snip. A ghost must need another worldly obstetrician or midwife. Is the psychic medium a spirit's shrink or acuches? Neither. She's the doula. The ghost need to doula? Alrighty then. Better a ghoul's doula than a hallow's evil wet nurse. That's poltergeist stuff. Some ghosts seem to need chains. Some people also seem to need them. Ghosts were once people, this makes sense. The chain might replace the tether in some cases, depending on whether the role of haint is self-imposed. To cast yourself in a shade monologue and saturate a place with your own inner suds is a far banshee cry from being sentenced to limp around in a heap of invisible bling, all a Sid Vicious, neck padlocked, keyless. Sid Vicious is definitely a ghost. He was a ghost when alive and a very bad one. He had no talent for it. He was all circumstance and no pomp, but he pulled it off. Probably lesser ghosts hated him. Ghosts are player haters. They need to step back, 
be less aura, more trace. A ghost needs Gandhi, 12 steps, or a massage of the gossamer pressure point that leads from the power left foot to the I don't give a damn center of the brain. Ghost brains all have reverse Alzheimer's. They can't forget, can't feign, can't faint at the sight of real or ethereal blood, can't pass out, can't nap through the boring bits, can't shake it off, can't make light, can't take a joke, can only emote, emote, emote. My God, you ghosts, get a grip. What you need and can't get is Mick Jagger singing satisfaction until you bleed blue luminescence from the sheer grist of it. What you need is validation, dear ghosts. What you need is a celestial telegram from your mama. Stop. A ghost needs is an SOS. A ghost needs Morse code but goes with the bat signal. A ghost in binary code needs one zero. Um, I will say, um, in preface to the next one, Singularity, that, um, what inspired me to write this one was that I had to te I was teaching, I was TAing a world lit class and the professor made the decision to make us teach excerpts of all the sacred texts. And I felt grossly underqualified for that. And, but one of the text that we had to read and analyze from a literary perspective was the book of Job. So I got to know that, that book really well and inspired this poem. <clears throat> Singularity. Job was a good man, not a wise one. So says Maimonides, Spanish Jew and philosopher. Job was a pussy. So say the Marines. hoo Job was a covert narcissist who saw his first wife and children as interchangeable with the new set and really only wanted to be admired. So says pop psychology. Job was a loyal subject. So says God, an overt narcissist, like father, like son. Or should we say the apple doesn't fall far? Har, har. Job was so accustomed to a life of privilege that when the biblical shit hit the satanic fan, he asked, why me? Instead of questioning his luck when times were easy. Job was a long sufferer, but not for life. So said every one of his slaves. Job was a bit of a drama queen. So says a Greek chorus of drag queens. Who would know? Sashay. Job was lucky to be a son of Jehovah instead of a daughter of Troy. So say Cassandra and Briseis. Job was a snooze fest. So say my students. Job was a cooperative learner who did wonderfully in math and music this year, numbers, psalms, but didn't reach his potential in science and is too often on cloud nine. So said his third grade teacher. Job was a farmer outstanding in his field. So said Job's obituary. Job was neither good nor evil, but a complex amalgam of positive and negative personality traits that emerged or not, depending on circumstances. So say the social sciences. Job was his DNA. Even his mullet was predetermined. So say the Minnesota twin studies. Job was a good provider, but not a good lover. And he never took me to Paris, though I begged. So said both of his wives. Job was never an eye-for-an-eye kind of guy. So say the theologians. Job was better than his author. Better, too, than this one. So say I. And those were two poems from uh, Gallimaufry and Farrago by Kathleen Balma. Um, so uh, David Cook says, uh, wow, that was fun. And uh, and that, those, those are good examples of kind of what you do with poetry. You just sort of start with a premise and then have fun with it, which is why it's a really enjoyable book. Um, there's some really good questions here. So let me let me pass on a, a couple of these. Um, so, so you mentioned uh, moving around a lot and you know, living in different places. And um, um, Kashyana Singh asks, uh, what have you imbibed from places you moved into? your poems. And then David Cook is a follow-up to that. In the same vein as Kashian's question, 
On the Isle of Man, they have a map of poems inspired by locations on the Isle. What places and what poems would you put on your map? <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Well, well, to simplify it, the relationship of place to poetry is a, it's a really big question. It's an interesting question. And I, one thing that I wish that I'd done more of is to sit down and to write about, like, just directly, explicitly about some of the wonderful places that I've lived and some of the horrible places that I've lived. And I am trying to do more of that now. And it's, it's, yeah, it's slow going. Um, what does happen is that things will just seep in. You know, um, so in this in this chapbook, there are there are a lot of there are quite a few poems that um, I think make it obvious that I've spent a lot of time in the Mediterranean. Um, I've I've also spent a lot of time in Italy because I was married to someone who grew up there, and we went to Florence every at least like every three years for a big chunk of time to spend with his family, and that place is a part of me now. Um, I know a little Italian. I didn't want to ruin my Spanish, so I, I didn't go too far with that. But uh, um, I, I think that you see, you'll see glimpses of Italy and Spain in my poems. Um, you'll definitely see a lot of the Midwest. There are a lot of poems that um, touch on what I would consider Midwestern themes, Abraham Lincoln. Um, there's one called Genetically Modified Crop Conspiracies and one about tornadoes um, called The Causes of Cyclone Formation Aren't Well Understood. Um, there, there's a lot of I'm not saying I'm trying to make the Midwest cool because that would be impossible, <laughs> but, um, you know, like I would like to redeem it a little bit, um, from its profoundly uncool status. And, um, and also because it's me, it's home, you know, it's, um, it's the, it's the place that made me that keeps coming up over and over again, but sort of the places I've chosen to live. One place that isn't coming up a lot that I'm trying, that I've kind of been consciously avoiding writing about is Australia because of my experiences there that I haven't been ready to write about yet. And I'm trying to do that now, but I don't have any Australia poems yet. Um, so that would be the, that would be what, a what do you mean? for me. You know, what kind of experiences or, or do you, is it something you don't want to talk about? I, I mean, I don't think I'm ready <laughs> to talk about it yet. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I think that'll, I think that that will eventually come into my work, but um, I mean, I moved there for a relationship. It's the only place that I ever moved that I didn't choose to move there, uh, um, I mean, the only place, um, I should say the only international location that I moved, that I didn't choose to move there, that I moved there because that's where the, the person that I wanted to be with at the time lived. And that was the only way because I was in, I was in the American Navy when I went, met him and he was in the Australian Navy and we had trained together. And, the only, and he, was, he was a career sailor, I wasn't. So the only way that was going to work was if I moved there. And we gave it a go. And... I, I'm just going to say the person I am now, I could probably really dig living in Australia, but you have to have a thick skin to live there. That's a place where they oh, rib yeah. you constantly. And I was <laughs> very, very sensitive. I mean, I would even say overly sensitive girl when I lived there and I could not take a joke and I could definitely not take, um, like the, it was just, it, it was a culture that I didn't feel that, that I fit in. I felt in every way that I didn't fit. And I kept trying to find my niche and find my people and not, kept not finding them and felt just very lonely, very mm -hmm. lonely the whole year. So, um, and I, and, and uh, also bad things happened to me there and I made bad choices as I often did. And um, <laughs> so there's a whole thing, but um, I have no Australia poems yet. Look, look for that. <laughs> yeah, it sounds future. like you have a, have a book coming up for sure. <laughs> Um, so let's do one more question from the audience here and then, uh, and we'll finish it maybe with two poems. Uh, let's see. Okay. So another from David Cook, but he says, are there particular pet peeves you find in poems you read, you write, or even your readers point out, namely Rodney Jones, which I have, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> what? <laughs> what he does his research. He, he's our, uh, he's our number one uh, viewer. He, he, he's prepared. <laughs> Pet peeves of mine, like pet, like things that I don't like to see in poetry, or things that people don't like uh, to see your in my pet poetry. Peeves. So you know you, that you find in poems you it's read, you write, or even your your readers point out. I don't 
don't know that I have readers, first of all. Like, if I have them, please show yourself. But I, I, I don't know about that one. But um, I guess my pet peeves, <clears throat> hmm. well, when I was in grad school, there were words that I didn't like to see because there were words that were coming up a lot in everybody's poems that were that seemed kind of random, but it was like, I got really tired of formica, hyacinth, and wisteria. It's <laughs> uh-huh. just, just just words because people just wanted to put them in poems, just to put them in poems. So th- that's probably the only pet peeve that I have is if I see if I see a word that seems to have come into style and everybody's sort mm-hmm. of flourishing it, you know. Um, I I guess the other thing is I I. This is the bitchiest thing I'm going to say. I don't like to be bored oh, yeah. when I'm reading. You know, like, please don't bore me. Like, if I, I'm cool with the fact that not all poetry has to be accessible to everybody and that, you know, and that some people just are more brainiacs than I am and they naturally write at a higher level than I do. And maybe, maybe and that's cool. That's fine. And, but but there's a lot of boring shit that I read that you don't have to be a brainiac to read. You know, like it's not that it's not accessible. It's just that there's not much going on. I, I don't know how to say this. I just, I find that when I, when I read, I think I'm a fairly open-minded reader. And I also, um, if I'm having trouble with a poem, I usually assume the fault is mine. I don't blame the poem. I blame myself. And I want to know what I can do to be a better reader so that I can access that poem and feel and really connect with it. Um, but I also am at a point in my life when I've gained some confidence about my reading abilities and that I didn't always have. And I, um, I, I feel that po- that fiction writers do something that poets don't do. It's something that fiction writers talk about a lot more. And that's just, um, wanting to have something at stake in the in the in the story and you know in the work so that people will actually have a reason to keep reading and I feel like poets we don't talk about that enough that we need to have there needs to be something at stake in the poem for people Mm -hmm. to want to keep reading that's not all about us it's it's also you know think about the poor reader who's you know maybe reading along reading along waiting for it to get better and it's uh, not getting better you know <laughs> yeah yeah well i totally relate so, to that yeah. like that's what there's sort of two things i do when i'm reading submissions which is first i listen for music which is really easy to hear like you can hear if people have the music of speech going on in their poem like if it's a real voice it's talking to you that's like cut off number one and then i just like wait to get bored and if I make it through the whole poem without getting bored, then that's one that I need to show everybody else and maybe we'll publish it. Like that's how, how simple it is, but that's what the editing process is. So, um, and I think you hit on something very, very yeah. true there. I... So wait, <laughs> what I don't understand about that question was, was, are, are you asking me what are Rodney Jones? I, I don't, I don't know what Rodney Jones about, has to do. I don't know. I don't know if Rodney Jones, but um, do you have an opinion about Rodney Jones or some kind of interaction? Yeah. He's in the, he's in the back room right now. Is it? You want to hear his opinion? <laughs> you want to hear his pet peeve? Um, I mean, uh, yeah, we, we read each other's work probably you know first we we are each other's mm-hmm. first readers oh, see, i had often. no idea I and um so he um he's we're brutally honest with each other <laughs> if i write something that's complete shit he'll just tell me and you know he never writes anything that's complete shit or if he does mm-hmm. he doesn't show it to me um but i'm pretty brutal with him too when something's not wor- working <laughs> for me so um but I, I have no idea what his pet peeves for my work are. That, that's um, an interesting question. <laughs> I, uh-huh. But he's watching right now, so if he wants to come in and comment at any point, <laughs> he, he can. And um, my, I, don't, I don't have any pet peeves for his work either. But, you know, but when you read somebody's work a lot, when you, you know, when you have that kind of relationship where you're reading somebody's work a lot, it's, it's, um, and commenting on it 
you do get to know each other's tics, each other's literary tics and, mm-hmm. and favorite moves. What I like about our editorial relationship is that we will call each other on, you know, you make this move a lot and you're, you're making it again here. Maybe you want to mm-hmm. try something new. And that's not a, that's not a bad thing. Like he pointed out that in my chat book, I used certain words over and over again that I didn't realize I was using over and over again. And that mm-hmm. was useful. Um, or certain rhetorical devices. Yeah. <laughs> I think that, it does. does that yeah. Help? Yeah. So, uh, so we're kind yeah. of run up on time. Um, do you want to finish out with maybe like two shorter poems or one longer poem? I have two shorter poems that are not in the chat book that I will read. Um, the, they're, they're both, um, autobiographical, which is a new thing for me to do. I don't, I haven't done autobiographical work for 15 years. So now I'm doing that. And they're both about, um, when I was a stripper, (laughs) yay, stripper poems. Everybody loves the stripper poems. So I'm probably going to keep writing them. Well, they're they're really interesting because, you know, Um, I've never been a stripper, so I have no idea what what right. that is like. So um, I don't know if you're. <laughs> people have. <laughs> so the first one is on um, Missouri Review Poem of the Week, um, and it was one of the weeks in November, and it's called Jaybirds. <clears throat> if someone is denuded, shouldn't that mean they are clad? This word is a wrong locution a shame to itself. It should stand for an act of dressing, a stripping away of nudity. Misleading, too, in Spanish, desnuda could do as Italian does. Just take that prefix right off. I clothed myself in public after a striptease once. I stood in an unlit spot far from the stage where all eyes should have gazed because Raven was there, nuding herself. I costumed in slow motion, partly for the luxury. Garments cinched, I looked for Ahmed and Fouad. They were playing pool in overalls. I crossed the room. Along the way, a man stretched out his arm, gave me a dollar. This is going to sound strange, he said but the sexiest thing I've seen is you getting dressed. If you're offended on my behalf, de-offend thyself. A dollar is as much as some can give, and my business was to inspire such comments. Odd but honest work. The naked get paid, the clothed leave broke, and none lose face until someone outside this place exposes us. Um, Milo's coming back for the last poem, I think. Milo, are you coming? Coming or going? All right, he's he's not coming. Uh, the last one is called Nude Bar, and it was uh, it was. I only enter the contests that pay you a lot because <laughs> you know, like contests are expensive. Um, and this was a finalist in the um. It's got a really long name. It's in Australia. I really wanted to win because it was in Australia. And I was like, yes, I'll go back to Australia and collect my prize. It'll be wonderful. But I didn't win. Um, It's the uh, University of Canberra Vice Chancellor's International Poetry Prize. That's a long anthology. Um, I should just cut you off and say that um, another stripper poem is Punchline, which is a finalist for the Rattle Poetry Prize. So uh, if you're watching this and you're a subscriber, you know, I'm not going to campaign to vote, but, but Kathleen might. So, um, you know, voting is open until February 1st for subscribers. Um, yeah, vote, vote your, your conscience. conscience. Vote your <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> um, all right. Last poem of the night, folks. Nude bar. <clears throat> I wanted to write about the dressing room, how if I ever had a harbor, that was it. Those rooms with those women. And how stupid excited I was, like all the other tourists, when I paid the extra fee to view the harem of Topkapi, only to find the drabbest part of the palace complex. Flat white walls, bare stone floor. Why didn't I expect that? I, who had known such places and knew better, Like everyone else, I was lured by the fantasy question, 
what went on in there. Here's what goes on backstage. A lot of naked women, sure, but they're not training for fellatio on bananas or rubbing each other with lavender oil. They're bickering over who gets to sit in what chair. They're not spreading their legs on a bearskin rug in front of a lit fireplace. They're spreading the word about who's tipping tonight and who never tips. They're complaining about the new girl, occasionally passing a joint. They're doing homework, possibly for your class. There's very little fighting, but sometimes big talk of fighting. There is no decor, just some old carpet and a bathroom big enough for 1.5 people to shower and shit. What did you imagine? What did you come here for? Well, Kathleen Balma, thanks so much for joining us on the Rattlecast. Uh, let me pass on one last comment. Uh, Gordon Capola says, I love, that, I love that your work always features compelling stakes. The experiences you create to share with us matter. And I totally agree, too. I sort of emphasize the fun of your poems because... That's not, that's totally sweet of him, but I'd have to say that Gordon is my well, friend. So. <laughs> but, but it's true, though. Your yeah. poems are about things that matter, too, in addition to being um, really fun, which is the more unusual thing for, for poetry. But, um, but both are really appreciated. So, so thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, thank yeah thanks, Kathleen Balma. Have a great night, and I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, so that was Kathleen Balma. Hope everybody enjoyed that. Um, and once again, let's, let me show you off her book. Uh, this is uh, Gallimaufry and Farrago by Kathleen Balma. Uh, it is from uh, Finishing Line Press. You can find them at finishinglinepress.com, spelled just like it sounds. Okay, well, that looks like it's the show for tonight. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. As always, please do uh, click the like button and share and tell your friends to watch this if you enjoyed it. We uh, visit with a new poet every Tuesday night, except for Christmas and New Year's Eve which uh, I didn't want to actually do a show then. But, but 50, uh, 50 weeks a year, either. We're going to visit with a new poet every night. Uh, next week, as I already mentioned, we will visit with Michael T. Young. Uh, that is February 4th, 2020 already. And um, Michael T. Young has appeared in two issues of Rattle. And uh, I'm looking forward to checking out his book, The Infinite Doctrine of Water. And uh, that's all for tonight. Hope you have, uh, have a good week, and I will see you next Tuesday.